I'm going to ask you to pray right now, okay? Each of you. Would you just take five seconds, ask God to speak to you, and then take another five seconds and ask God to speak to the people sitting right around you, okay? Do that, please. Father, we do trust that you will speak to each one of us today. That's why we're here. We're here to meet with you. God, would you bless this time? Would you bless your word? Holy Spirit, teach us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of uh, the sermon today is Rescued from Religion. How do you know if you need to be rescued? From religion. Well, I've put together a little test for you. Okay? I put together a little test to see if you need to be rescued from religion. You ready? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. You can just keep a mental check, okay, if any of these are true for you. Number one, you might need to be rescued from religion if grace is something that others need. Not you. Number two, you measure and compare your conduct with others instead of with Christ. You might need to be rescued from religion if that's true. Uh, If you think favor with God is something you can earn, you may need to be rescued from religion. Appearances are more important than the heart. You may need it. The do's and don'ts outweigh your love for God. That's true. You might need to be rescued. And lastly, you may need to be rescued from religion if you're doing the karma creep. What's the karma creep? Where karma starts creeping in to your theology. You know what karma is, right? I do something good, something good happens to me. I do something bad, something bad happens to me. That's not good theology, and it's certainly not biblical. Do we need to be rescued? You can be the judge of that. Religion, is it helpful or is it hurtful? You can be the judge of that too as we look at some passages today. These passages will probably not be on your favorite list. You know it? They won't be on your warm, fuzzy list. Oh, I just love these ones so much about Jesus. Probably not, because these are the passages where Jesus is ticked off. Where Jesus is angry. Now let me be clear before we read these passages. Anger is not a sin. Okay? Anger is not a sin. It's what we do with anger that can become sin, right? Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, In your anger, do not sin. Okay, so Jesus was angry. Jesus was angry at times. Jesus never sinned, not once. So, that's the preface. If you want to grab a Bible, if not, the passages will be up here. The first passage is Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And I'm going to try to read it from here. Another time, he went, he, Jesus, went into the synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. 
Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Am I echoing? To accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked, him, asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus is angry. What made him angry that day? Why is he upset? Some um, you could speculate is that he was being accused or wanted, they wanted to accuse him of something. Uh, but if you take into account other passages in Scripture where Jesus is falsely accused of things, um, it's, it's pretty clear that that probably isn't it. I mean, Jesus was accused of all kinds of things uh, in his three-year earthly ministry. He was accused of heresy, just false teaching. He was accused of being a drunkard. He was accused of being a devil. Okay, But in none of those situations did he get mad. Did he get angry or upset? So what caused him to be angry this day? Was it that they remained silent? When he asked him a question? Or because he knew they were going to go plot his death as soon as they left? Let's look at John chapter 2 and maybe it'll help shed some light on this passage, okay? John chapter 2, verses 12 to uh, 16. After this, he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for my house, or your house will consume me. What did Jesus find when he got to Jerusalem? The temple had been turned into a strip mall and an exchange bank. Now it doesn't say that Jesus was angry in this passage. But his actions are pretty fierce. They're pretty strict, aren't they? It appears that Jesus is upset. Now, when I get upset, not that I do, but hypothetically, of course, if I get upset, it's usually an emotional response, right? Um, it's an emotional reaction to something, right? Maybe that's true for you. probably is. Jesus takes the time to sit down and make a whip. Okay? So most whips were strips of either linen or, linen or, or leather. 
braided or woven together to make. Jesus is not just blowing off a little steam here, is He? What upset Him provoked a methodical and a premeditated response to what He's about to do. For Him to take the time to make a whip before He does it. This is not just an emotional reaction, is it? Now to understand why Jesus is so upset, we have to understand the purpose of the temple. And we also have to understand the purpose of Jesus coming in the first place. So first, the temple. The purpose of the, of the temple was to be a place where people could encounter God. Where they could come and experience the presence of God. Deal with their sin through a sacrifice. But the whole purpose is, is to encounter God. To draw nearer to Him. A guy I know in Boulder, a pastor of a church in Boulder, uh, recently wrote a book and, and uh, somebody in his congregation sent it to me. And this pastor, his name is Gene Binder, and Gene is a Messianic Jew. So he is a follower of Christ, but he comes from a Jewish heritage, right? Uh, he has walked with God for many years. He has pastored a evangelical church in Boulder for many years. Um, great teacher of the Word. The book he wrote is called Connecting the Dots. And it's a great read. But because of his Jewish heritage and because of many, many trips to Israel, um, he has a deep understanding of the Old Testament. And what I'm going to do is just give you the bullet points of, of the Old Testament from his book, okay? Um, seven of them, and, and how he describes them. Okay, the first is the covenant. You've heard that word covenant. The Ab- referring to the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, the, the covenant between Abraham, his people, and God. The covenant, Gene refers to as the marriage. The nation of Israel is the family. The promised land is the family home. The Old Testament law are the family rules. The temple is access to dad. Isn't that great? The temple is access to dad. The Sabbath is family time. And the feasts are family reunions. You see, it's all about relationship. When you read the Old Testament with that understanding that God wants to, for us to experience Him. He wants His people, whether they be Jewish or whether they be grafted in Gentiles like us, to experience Him. To have relationship with Him and with each other. So, experiencing the presence of God. That's the purpose of the temple. That's why it was there. Secondly, the purpose of Jesus' coming is very similar, right? He came so that you and I and people from every nation on this planet could experience God the Father. Deal with our sin once and for all so that we could come into right relationship with the Father. 1 Peter 3.18, Peter writes, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. To bring you to God. That's the whole purpose. That's why He came. Jesus, in a sense, took the place of the temple. There was no need for the temple after Jesus was here, after His resurrection, because He did it from then on. 
in fact, when he's asked by some Jews after he cleared the temple that day for a miraculous sign to prove his authority to do this, he responded, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Right? He's referring to his resurrection. And in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said, I tell you, one greater than the temple is here. Referring to himself. So the purpose of the temple and the purpose of Jesus is to provide a place and a way for people to draw near to God the Father. It's about relationship, right? But when Jesus gets on the scene in Jerusalem, the purpose of the temple has totally been corrupted, right? It's been lost. The real purpose has been lost and replaced by people, greedy people, cashing in on it. So it seems that what upsets him is anything that becomes a stumbling block or a hindrance to people drawing nearer to God. That's what makes him mad. Now there may be a few here that would disagree with me, but I usually find it easier to draw near to God if I'm not shopping at a strip mall. I'm just saying, that's the, now I'm, I might be meddling somewhere. Sorry. But the, but the stumbling block is more than the commercial business that's taking place here. It's that the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, are profiting from it, and they're making it more difficult for people to come near to God. That's why Jesus is upset. It was a perverted religious spirit that permeated everything they did. A spirit that said a man couldn't be healed on the Sabbath. Can you imagine? How dare they? A spirit that was making a profit on all the Jews traveling from all over that came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and offer sacrifices. The religious leaders had totally lost their heart for God and for shepherding God's people. And this is why Jesus comes down the hardest on the religious leaders. You know it? Every one of his clashes in the gospel accounts are with the very religious people. Not once does he have a a hostile encounter with, with a pagan. He doesn't. John Eldridge in his book, some of you read John Eldridge books, but John Eldridge in his book, Beautiful Outlaw, writes, if you were to read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, if you read to read the Gospels without bias or assumption, you would have no trouble whatsoever coming to believe that religion is the enemy. Or in the hands of the enemy. It's religion that can actually become a hindrance. Or this religious spirit that can be a stumbling block. You know why religion hinders us from drawing near to God? Because it's religious activity, ritualistic religious activity, that gives the impression of having Christ. While it inoculates you from experiencing the real thing. Religion can keep you from relationship. Now, of course, God knew this, and so He warned them many times in the Old Testament of the danger of this. In various places of the Old Testament, uh, God said, 
I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And in another place, God, re- referring to the religious people, said, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They're warnings to the Jewish people, their leaders, not to the pagans of that day. But the same warnings are valid for us too, aren't they? They can be. For us in the church, if our eyes and hearts are open, we can see this religious spirit at work at times. It's expressed in many ways, you know it. In rules, extra rules, in language, extracurricular activities that you don't find in Scripture. I read the other day of a story of three brothers who uh, used to live in the same small town and one of, one of them had to move away. Um, the brothers, before they, while they lived in the same town, they would every week, once a week, go to a pub in the small town and each have a mug of beer. And that's how they spent time together, three of them. Well, the brother that moved away moved to another small town. I found a saloon or a pub in that town. So he went in uh, and ordered three mugs of beer. And he would take them to a back booth and sip, take a sip out of each one all the way down until they were all three gone as a way to remember his brothers. Well, he did this over and over. Every week he would do this. Um, after a few weeks, the bartender suggested, you know, if you, if you would just order one at a time, they won't get warm and flat on you. And the man explained about his two brothers and how they would gather and have, share a beer together. And that's why he was doing this. And that's why he would take three beers to a back booth and sip them till they were gone. So after about a year of this, one day the man came in and only ordered two beers took them to the back table. Um, As he sipped on them, the bartender took notice that he'd only ordered two, and he figured, ah, the man must have lost one of his brothers. So he went back and offered his condolences and said, I'm sorry, you you must have lost one of your brothers. The man said, oh no, my brothers are fine. It's it's just that my wife and I joined the church and I had to quit drinking. That's a religious spirit at work, right? No drinking. No drinking any alcohol. Really? You can't find that in Scripture, can you? Rules that we add to the Christian equation. Rules, the extra rules, the do's and don'ts that that aren't in Scripture are not going to help you draw nearer to God. Just before Jesus made that whip of cords, and chase all the cattle and everything out of the temple, he's at a wedding, isn't he? Where he's turning water into wine. And my neighbor Rob makes some really good wine. But I think this was better. Jesus makes six kegs of wine. Conservatively, each keg was 20 to 30 gallons. So conservatively, 120 gallons of wine is what Jesus gave as a wedding present. Isn't that incredible? That's at least 700 bottles of wine. Do we really think Jesus would give them something that would be a hindrance 
to them drawing near to his father. Now, to be fair, a Jewish wedding would have been a huge celebration. It would have lasted for days and maybe even a week. So Jesus, Jesus is not promoting drunkenness. Let's be clear of that, right? Um, it's not like the Russians that I used to go hunting with, <laughs> okay? When Annette and I lived in Russia for eight years, and I finally found some guys that took me hunting, but then they asked me to drive. <laughs> you drive your car, we'll all get in with you. There's four of them. So on our way out of the city, uh, they said, we got one stop to make on the way out. I said, okay, where at? They said, right there, the vodka factory outlet. <laughs> we stopped. They, uh, they bought, there was four of them. They ended up buying five bottles of vodka. So I, I did the math. Um, and given the way Russians were prone to finishing bottles of vodka, I figured, you know what? They're, they got one wild night ahead of them, and then we'll get some hunting done. Never underestimate a Russian with vodka. <laughs> I'd forgotten what I was told about fishing in Russia. Russians have a saying about fishing. Fishing is just drinking with hip boots on. <laughs> what I didn't know that day was that they already had five bottles of vodka tucked in their hunting gear. So what started as a three-day hunt became three days of designated driving for me. Jesus is not promoting that kind of drinking here, okay? Let's be clear. Drunkenness is a sin. It's clear in Scripture. But you cannot find a place in Scripture that tells us that drinking is wrong. Maybe it's just an extra religious rule that has been applied at some point. An extra rule that won't help us draw near to God. Jesus also told his disciples at the Last Supper that he would not drink again of the fruit of the vine until he drinks it anew in the kingdom of God. So there must be some drinking in heaven, in the very presence of the Father. I bet that's some good stuff. You know what? That's probably not your Boone's Farm jug of Ernest and Julio Gallo type stuff there. Oh, it's not just drinking, is it? That's just an easy one to pick on. There's many ways we see that this religious spirit give way to extra rules. Maybe it's dancing in some churches. Maybe it's not eating meat on a certain day of the week. Maybe it's being offended by, by the behavior of someone who isn't even a follower of Christ. If you feel like I singled you out or, or offended you only, I'm sorry to the rest of you because I really intended on stepping on everyone's toes, <laughs> my own included. In every church, there are bits of religious spirit. And we need to wipe away this religious fog if we're going to see clearly. But we won't wipe away what we don't even know is there, right? The question for us today then is this. Do the things that made Jesus angry make me angry? Do they? I listened to a song the other day, a worship song, and the verse, one of the verses is, God, break my heart with what breaks yours. 
Another way to say it would be, God, make me angry over what makes you angry. What does make you angry? If I'm honest with you today, here's, here's, here's my list of just recent, real recent, that have made me angry. Traffic and Gunnison. Now, those that are visiting from a city, I know, don't, don't even go there. Traffic and Gunnison, um, going to City Market. That won't last long. Now it's going to be, have the new grand open. Everything will be back in place and I'll be able to find what I need. But I'm just saying, for now, that's where I've been. Um, tech support on a computer. If you are not fully walking in the power of the Spirit, that could cause you to lose some blood vessels somewhere. Maybe it's something bigger for you. I don't know. Someone's hurt you mistreated you, slandered you. But even, even in those situations, Jesus didn't respond with anger. Those things happened a lot for Jesus. He was mistreated. He was falsely accused. People said bad things about Him. Maybe all those are just opportunities for my growth. For me to chance... I have a chance to practice patience for me to to love my enemy. Maybe what should anger us is when we see a religious spirit that causes others to add something to the Christian equation. To add something to what Jesus did. Remember 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ died for sins to bring you to God. That's the equation. It's Christ's sacrificial death that paves the way for relationship with God. That's it. So maybe what should anger me is when I see folks that are hindered from coming to God because of some religious rules. Or when someone adds anything to what Jesus did, thinking it's going to help them. You know, one whole book in the New Testament was written for that reason. It's the book of Galatians. And the Holy Spirit directed Paul to write this book to correct some that were trying to add to the Gospel. Specifically, they were adding, adding circumcision to it. And he said, whoa, time out. Stop it. You, you don't add anything to what Jesus did. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. and We're going to look at our last passage today. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have Him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, He was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to Me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. Jesus was indignant. Maybe not full-blown anger. I don't know. Probably pretty darn close. Who? With whom? This time it's not religious leaders, is it? It's his own disciples. But it's for the same reason. Because they were becoming a hurdle. They were putting something in the way for people to get close to Jesus. 
Anything that gets in the way. Anything that we do like that, that becomes a hurdle. Becomes a barrier between someone and God. That's what made Jesus angry. Now we've got to be careful here. We don't just point the finger to some you know, clerical bullies back in Bible times. We do, we've probably already been deceived by the same Spirit in some ways. The point is to examine ourselves and our church, ask God to help us see the fog and wipe it away. Do you need to be rescued from religion today? Does our church need to be rescued? Maybe we all need to be some. The best vaccination against a religious infection, at least that I have found, is to dwell on this simple truth right here. That there is nothing, there is nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there is nothing you can do that will make God love you less. His love for you is based on what His Son Jesus did. If you're sitting here this morning and you're like, I'm not sure about that, I don't know. Jesus Christ paved the way. The only barrier between us and God is sin. It's our own sin. And that's why Jesus came. He came and took that sin with Him to a cross and said, here, it's a gift. Let me give you this. And by faith, all we have to do is say, yeah, I want it. I want you. I need forgiveness. That's it. And if you're sitting there this morning and, and, and you've experienced that, you know what I'm talking about, then dwell on that truth. There is nothing you can do that will make God love you any more than He already does. And there is nothing you can do that will make God love you any less whatsoever. Okay? Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled when we think of what You did. That You first loved us. You loved us and You proved it by sending Your Son to die in our place. Lord, thank You for that expression of love. Lord, help us to fight against this religious spirit that creeps up at times. The stuff that comes up in my heart when I think, Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you happy here, God. You're already happy with me. You're already happy with every one of us, because you look at us through the lens of what your your Son Jesus Christ has already done for us. Father, that is just incredible. Thank you for that kind of love that is totally unconditional and is always present. I don't ever have to look for it; it's always there. Father, if there's someone here today that has never experienced that kind of love from You, I pray that today would be the day they'd say yes to You. They'd say, I want what He's talking about. I want that kind of relationship with You, Father. And for the rest of us, God, would You help us dwell on the truth that there's nothing we can do that's going to make You love us any more and nothing we can do that make You love us any less. Thank You for that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.